You're listening to the Inside Study Abroad podcast, episode number 51. Welcome to the Inside Study Abroad podcast. I'm your host, Brooke Roberts. In this show, we explore the world of international education and meaningful travel with some fascinating guests, a little friendly debate, and a whole lot of practical advice. Let's get going. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Inside Study Abroad podcast. And today we have our first returning guest on the show, sort of ish, uh, the amazing John Christian, president and CEO of Kappa, the global education network. I don't know if I'm legally required to say the whole thing, but Kappa. Um, And for those of you who are subscribed to the podcast and have listened, you'll know that last week I shared the original interview I did with John back in 2012. That That interview has lived on the YouTube channel for all this time, nine years. And I thought I should figure out what's going on with John these days, what's happening with Kappa and do a little refresher. Where are they now kind of segment? And John is so graciously agreed to come on the podcast and, and talk shop and do all the things. Welcome back, John. Thank you, Brooke. It's actually, I was so delighted that you asked to do this. You know, it's almost a decade since we spoke. I listened to our original conversation and what I like about what you do is you make this a conversation. It's not some kind of, you know, throw information out there, but let's, let's talk what's going on in this field right now. Yeah, <laughs> Which is, you know, a lot has been going on and, um, you know, frankly, there's a lot, there was a lot going on, especially like with Kappa and your life, um, even before the pandemic, but obviously the pandemic has just I feel like nowadays I can't have interviews like fresh interviews with people without addressing like this big, you know, uh, elephant in the room for all of us. Um, though, so for those of people who want to know John's origin story and how he found his way to international education, we cover that really well in the last episode. Although sidebar, John and I, before we started recording, we did both (laughs) vent a little bit about how like horrible we both feel like we sounded, I think John sounded great. I'm like, oh, how did anyone listen to that? I'm horrible. But uh, we've, we've both improved, grown up, matured since then. And I've hopefully gotten to be a better uh, interviewer. So uh, we'll launch into this. We're going to cover a lot, hopefully, um, and uh, give you all a lot of great insights into um, the provider perspective on the pandemic. And, um, you know, John, who's been working in the field for a very long time, sort of his saged sort of opinion and foresight into the future of international ed and what he's looking forward to and hopeful for um, in the future. So we're not going to talk about his origin story. Go listen to the last episode. But I do want to talk about a little bit that we didn't address in the first episode is how did you become president and CEO of Kappa? Like, how did you go, you know, you, you talked about being a foreign student advisor, but we didn't really connect the dots to Kappa. And I'd love to, if you'd love to share, you know, a little synopsis of how did that come about for you? You know, um, wow. The short version is that I was the, you know, I became the resident director of the SUNY Oswego London program. So if you read, if you listen to the previous podcast, you'll know that my alma mater of SUNY Oswego, we made a, a very significant gift to them. And it's because my relationship to Oswego really led to where I am right now talking to you. Mm-hmm. So as this resident director, I, you know, it was a London program. We had, I don't know, 15 courses, a really expansive co-curricular strategy to get people on the street and, and you know, explore and analyze their cities and synthesize it in the classroom. And it was great. Mm-hmm. Um, 
a few institutions saw what we were doing and said, you know, could we partner with you? So the University of Pittsburgh came along, University of Minnesota, UMass Amherst, and it started to turn into something. And it turned into a small organization, which I had led. And we organically grew this curriculum and the, the, the student body over years. And at one point, the, the funding that we had through this uh, inbound travel agency, actually, we're, we're ready to give it up. And mm -hmm. so I and a few Kappa colleagues actually led a campaign to recruit the funds and we purchased Kappa. Mm -hmm. And so we set it up as a, yeah. uh, an organization ran out of Boston um, and, you know, continued to evolve over the years from Kappa to Kappa International Education to where we are now, the Global Education Network. So I love it. It's a, it's a great story because it's a story about passion and belief and taking a chance. You yeah. know, we were a group of people that just knew we could do something special in learning abroad mm -hmm. and we trusted each other and we took a financial and professional risk and, and it turned out to be the most wonderful decision probably of my life. Yeah. I love that. I love, you know, me, I love all the entrepreneur stories. Um, I, I feel like you just reminded me of this, but I have it on good authority that I am in this field, maybe partially sort of related to you. <laughs> so, um, oh, I, <laughs> I studied abroad. Uh, I mean, I did a, a trip with my Spanish teacher. I wasn't really study abroad for two weeks in France and Spain when I was in high school. And the company that we went through was called NETC, which I believe was that original company that yes that was yeah. our original partner yes and they were oh. focused on high school education we were study abroad yeah yeah and it just made good sense for us to break off and yeah, yeah. You know, i love the that study abroad avenue that's great how yeah. we are related <laughs> i mean it goes way back way back god i had my you know they gave you the your little luggage tags i had my luggage tag for them i think all through i used that same one all through college all my study <laughs> So there you go. I have some Kappa slash NET connections there. So um, awesome. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about Kappa. I, I, and I forgive me if I don't have the timeline correct, but I believe let's, let's talk a little about how Kappa grew and developed even pre pandemic. So when we had talked, I believe you all were just sort of moving in the direction of the study center model. And I think even before we get into that, maybe if you could define for those who are just curious about the field and not really sure what we mean by study center, what is a study center when we're talking about in global ed? It's actually, uh, we were well into kind of expanding the study center uh, agenda really when we met mm -hmm. actually. Um, and, you know, if I were to define it, I would probably go by the opportunities that center-based learning offers. Mm -hmm. uh, faculty and students. And so firstly, it is basically hosting a program in an infrastructure. So we have small schools, if you will, or study centers, you know, located in the various cities where Kappa operates its programs. So with that comes classrooms, resource rooms, uh, faculty, staff, and the opportunity to really have a high impact, intentional study abroad experience. Now, this isn't to say any other experience isn't as great, but my experience from the SUNY Oswego London program when I was a participant in 1986 to my being the RD and then evolving into this organization, Kappa, was 
If you actually had faculty teaching courses and they were committing to co-curricular work and they were getting students outside, exploring their cities, analyzing them and synthesizing that in the classroom, you would have a deeper level of impact in their, in their knowledge base and their experience overall. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say direct enroll isn't having the same experience, but with the study center, you can really generate curriculum and an overall experience for that student at that time. They're not mm -hmm. directly enrolling into something that's already been prepared, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, we started off in London, we expanded into Florence, then we went to uh, Sydney, uh, Beijing, uh, Beijing, then Shanghai, Dublin, et cetera, et cetera. Um, mm -hmm. And in all those locations, we have Kappa staff and faculty. Some have been with us for decades, other, you know, others have not. Um, who all share in this mission of high impact teaching and learning. Mm -hmm. The study center also for Kappa, because our, our models are really our global city programs, internships, um, and our custom programs. The study centers really allow us to work with institutions to generate unique programs to you know, their institution, their department, mm -hmm. individual faculty, mm -hmm. et cetera. So the, the agenda for the topics of teaching and learning are easier to expand when you have a center to do the production in. Mm -hmm. So are all the courses that are taught at the centers in-house in courses? Or if I wanted to go to the London Center, but I also wanted to take biochem at UCL, do you also facilitate that? Or is it all just in-house uh, courses? Good question. It was actually mostly in-house, but over the last couple of years, we've expanded every location to include a, a direct enrollment option. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, we do work with local institutions. In Sydney, we work with UTS, for example, and that helps complement our curriculum with you know engineering and science courses that we aren't hosting at the right. center because some courses are are not well placed at a center because right. they need labs and other you know specific requirements that we're infrastructurally not going to be able to support. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we did we did expand the opportunity for the the curriculum by working with local institutions and our you know our internship program is is you know a significant piece of what we do mm -hmm. our our general global city program on average, 90% of the students are actually doing an internship as well as their academic oh, courses. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, yeah, I'm all about that internship life. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what else? I mean, aside from the study centers, obviously I had that timing wrong, but um, I know that that's something that Kappa is, in my opinion, I would say that's the feather in your cap. That's what you are amazing at. It's what you're known for. Thank what you. else? Uh, yeah. What else about um, you know has grown and 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 morphed over time with Kappa? And let's like keep it to pre-pandemic time because obviously then the pandemic screwed everybody over. So <laughs> well, actually, there's a story here that when we get to the yeah. the, the the pandemic, yeah. um, what I'm going to tell you actually became more vital to Kappa than I ever imagined it would be. Mm -hmm. okay. So about six years ago, I was actually at Oswego uh, uh, doing a, a presentation with the president on the, the gift that I had made to them. Mm -hmm. And as part of my visit, they were showing me, you know, innovative things that Oswego were doing. And they were heavily involved in the online learning mm -hmm. uh, piece called COIL, so Cooperative mm -hmm. Online International Learning. And, you know, SUNY championed the whole COIL network piece that a lot of people are, are, are you know, replicating today. Um, and I went to a classroom and there was a group of students in Oswego, New York, 
who were looking at a screen with a group of students in Ecuador. And there was a faculty person in our room and a faculty person in their room. And there was the end of their course. And what struck me is that they were doing presentations and they could see each other, hear each other. And by the way, they joked with each other, feel each other. And I had never seen such a dynamic interaction over a screen. I, mm -hmm. You say that now, right? And yeah. we all live in these, these Zoom yeah. worlds, right? Yeah. This, this was you know, six or more years ago. Definitely pre-Zoom. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I walked away thinking, oh my God, this is, this is amazing. And so, you know, I went to task and I assembled a group and we created what you know us as the Global Education Network. Mm -hmm. And actually what we did is install global classrooms in all of our centers. So we dedicated a classroom to create this kind of lab with, uh, with screens and microphones and you could see students, hear students, they could see you and hear them. And what we essentially did is create a network out of all the capacites. So you could have a course being taught in London and then team taught in Florence. You could have a course taught across the entire network. And the advantage here was that you would gain a more global perspective. And in my mind, it was really taking CAPA from an international education organization to a globally positioned educational mm -hmm. organization. So really becoming transnational is kind of how we described it. It wasn't a small endeavor. And you know, I have to say back then, Building out the global classrooms was a major investment for the organization, which several people questioned and said, oh, technology and study abroad, it doesn't it's belong here. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it was never my intention or CAPA's to um, replace in-country learning with a virtual experience. You know, if kids weren't going to have headsets on and pretend they were walking you know, down the, the Louvre or anything. Mm -hmm. um, so it, the intention was to actually give them a, a more global perspective on their courses. So we have courses, you know, in marketing where students are working with students in other countries to build a marketing plan on product placement mm -hmm. or a course in, in art where you're, you're doing comparative art across three different countries and gaining a perspective that you wouldn't naturally get by mm -hmm. just studying in one country. Mm -hmm. So I love it's been it. a I very think about, exciting journey and it's, you know, before the pandemic, about 85% of our students had one form of globally networked learning in, in their study abroad experience. So they really were getting this kind of global experience rather than the, the single city they were studying in. Mm -hmm. I, what I love about that is that it makes me think of those like very specific kind of statements that we want students to be able to communicate um, and process and, and, you know, a statement that starts with, well, in Florence, I've observed that they, or that it is like, or, you know, those types of statements. And in Sydney, I've, I've seen that they seem to do things this way. Um, and then being able to communicate that with each other while we're both currently on the ground to sort of compare notes, so to speak. Um, that's really powerful. Cause I think that's one of our biggest challenges as a field is getting a student to actually process. Well, what do you think is happening? What are you observing and why do you think that is the way that is in this location? Um, and what are the implications of those are of those observations? Um, and I, I think that that's really powerful, especially doing it at the peer to peer level. Um, cause they'll be probably be a little more real with each other. <laughs> um, uh, you and know, the, uh, the, the whole notion of a, a comparative analysis and that mm -hmm. approach, 
I mean, it wasn't a walk in the park. I have to say, this was a retraining program for faculty. It was mm -hmm. a technological event for the organization. And actually, you know, it, the assumption was the students are going to love this. And actually, in the beginning, it was, you know, Harder. teaching them how to go across time zones, how to actually enjoy learning online or participating in lectures online and all that, all those kind of skills, actually, that I have to say, it probably prepared them very well for our, yeah. our pandemic <laughs> Zoom life. But yeah, in the I end, can imagine, it, yeah. In the end, it, it really did evolve into something very special in terms of how students would, you know, live in one city and learn about another mm -hmm. from faculty and students in that other country. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think that's great. Obviously, you are an early, early mover, early adopter, if you will, um, a CAPA is as an organization. So that's always exciting for me to hear, because as we know, um, higher ed generally tends to be um, a little bit of a slower snail when it comes to innovation. Um, no offense, higher ed, but that's kind of how it is. <laughs> um, so uh, let's shift gears. Um, let's start talking about well, that's a little BC, like before COVID. Um, let's talk about DC during. Um, and maybe if you could break down and give us, describe for us what was going on with Kappa in the early days of the pandemic. Um, when we're hearing the news stories, I know you all had a, a, a center in sh Shanghai um, as well. So I'm, I'm sure you were seeing it even earlier than some some companies and organizations. Um, yeah, yeah what were those first initial weeks like and what were you thinking? How were you handling things at first? Well, I, I so this is a, sorry, my screen's like jumping around. Um, it was actually the biggest semester in campus history, spring 2020. In terms of and enrollments? Yes, but oh, not wow. just enrollments. We rolled out all kinds of new programs. The, yeah. In the digital space, we were creating these very cool interactions amongst internship sites and the interns themselves and workforce management, supply chain. And it was just beautiful, really. Mm -hmm. All the work that we put in, it started to kind of come together and make sense and you know we had the enrollment dollars to actually pay for it yeah um and then it uh, then it happened yeah and it was in shanghai it was in china mm -hmm. um and so you know we had to suspend our china program but uh, I mean, before the suspension like I, I like even before that more granular like do you remember, like, was it January or February where you got a call, for instance, from your RD, your resident director in Shanghai going, there's kind of something going on here. We might, something well, might happen. Like, what was that like? I'm a news hound. So, you know, not that this yeah. podcast needs to learn about my rhythm, but I'm, <laughs> I'm up like at quarter to four, 3.30 every day. And the very okay. first thing I do is I read several news sources for a multitude of reasons, but actually it's part of my job really to just monitor where we are. So I'd already been watching this bug, if mm -hmm. I can call it that. Um, and so, I, you know, I think in the early days, we had already been talking about, okay, this is a, this is a, this is a thing of interest. We need to, mm -hmm. to monitor. We've got students living in China. So mm -hmm. let's figure out where this is going to go from Wuhan to, you know, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And as it started to expand, um, it got more alarming. But I will tell you in the early days, we had a kind of mindset, all right, well, if we have to bring them home from China, let's, it's early, you know, it's, was it January, I guess? Yeah. Um, 
let's relocate them. And in fact, Kappa did do that. I think almost every student actually moved to either London or Dublin or, or Sydney. And, you know, we, we helped finance that just to make sure that they wouldn't have program disruption, mm -hmm. not really realizing the, the level yeah. of disruption that was coming down the pike. Um, yeah. And so we suspended the program, you know, in accordance with everything everyone else did in terms of WHO and the CDC mm -hmm. and all that stuff. And in terms of mindset, I think we just thought, all right, this is possibly going to be contained to China. And we're just going to, you know, we're going to go dormant for a little while and reopen Shanghai because, as you know, I studied in China for a year and a half and went to SOAS. And, you know, I love China. I'm a Sinophile. Um, but it didn't quite work out that way, mm -hmm. as you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, a lot of companies, um, were hit. I mean, were, they were hit in so many ways. And of course, student, the student experience was hit and I, I'm not insensitive to those things, but since I have you on the podcast, I feel like, um, I like to get real with people about <sighs> what were the true implement implications of, of this for an organization like a, like a Kappa. Um, we, you know, we've heard, you know, the, the press releases of a CIE, you know, furloughing or laying off 70% of their workforce. Um, I'm sure you were also, you know, a, confronted with a lot of challenging decisions, um, from a financial point of view, organizational point of view. Um, what were some of those decisions that you had to face and, and, and what did you decide? Well, you know, they're shared amongst all of us, really. Mm -hmm. I think we, uh, one of the things that I like about what has happened is the, the community generally came together and communicated widely with each other to, to assess situations and look at best practice and things like that. But ultimately, you know, March came along and it really, you know, Italy started to obviously have the case surge that they had. So we had to look at what we were going to do there. And as it just, I'm trying to keep this as brief as possible because everybody knows the story. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it just got to a point where essentially we, you know, brought a thousand kids back to the United States. And mm -hmm. the initial the initial reaction for Kappa, for I think all of us really, was how are we going to help these guys, these students uh, continue their semester? So we're talking about a lot of people with major disruption. You know, some students losing a whole semester would disrupt graduation, employment plans, graduate mm -hmm. school, their lives. And not to mention, you know, emotionally, I mean, I can feel that when I talk about it. Yeah. The, the loss of your study abroad program. I mean, I, you know, all of us who've done this, you know, you can go to that special place and know what it was like to, to have the privilege of learning abroad. And mm -hmm. this was the major disruption nobody would have ever forecasted on a scale, you know, of a pandemic. And so the priorities for Kappa really were to get kids home safely, to figure out how, you know, to handle the economic crisis, and then to make sure they continue their education. I, you know, I'm not bragging about Kappa because we all had to deal with this, but I will say to the naysayers who said, don't bring technology into your learning abroad platform. We were very fortunate in that we were able to put most of our curriculum online pretty quickly. And it was about a week of disruption before we got kids back into their Zoom rooms, classrooms. 
parents' basements or wherever they were actually mm -hmm. learning from. So one of the things we're really proud of is we got students to be able to bring their semester to a close. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we did a lot of work of helping them reflect on their in-country experience as they were looking at their their home experience while still analyzing and exploring the, the globe, if you will, through their mm -hmm. courses. Um, we put students into remote internships, um, which became a really big deal for us, actually. But the internship sites continue to host our students. And in fact, we launched a new product out of this whole pandemic, which is a remote global internships, mm -hmm. internship, excuse me. Um, and so, you know, for the semester after, you know, spring 20, uh, summer, autumn, and thereafter, and now, we still have students who are actually in the United States participating in a global internship remotely. Mm -hmm. And we've adjusted the curriculum to reflect that and, and other things. So mm -hmm. I'm skipping around here, but, uh, you know, yeah. what? it so, was a devastating moment, but yeah. we got through it. And what about like internally, like, did, were you able to keep most of your staff? Um, was that a priority or did you have to make some hard decisions there? It was a number one priority. So we did something called a kind of shared economic split or, mm -hmm. you know, so I'll describe it as better, but that's internally what we, we kind of looked at it and essentially Yes, we had to make cuts just like everybody else. And mm -hmm. it was a very, um, very sad, very difficult period of time. You know, I maintain 20 years ago and today and into the future that Kappa's greatest asset is its community. Mm -hmm. And it's the, the community of teachers and administrators and caretakers and so on and so forth that actually make our organization wonderful and a, and a nice place to be so to have to lose anybody was just you know what can i say it was horrible yeah so in an effort to try to minimize that we basically went across the organization we looked at different funding schemes in every single country and there were schemes available so that is that is terrific mm -hmm. which allowed us to retain a lot of our staff and then where we didn't have so much of a, uh, a governmental scheme we created our own and so we essentially asked everybody, including everybody, leadership, myself, everybody, to take a pay cut. Mm. And, you know, we presented as this is the community helping, you know, save the community and mm -hmm. everybody participated in it. And so we reduced our, our wage roll by actually getting everybody to just take less money. Mm -hmm. and, and that worked for a while. And um, we didn't have to let go of as many people as we would have normally had these schemes and our, our community not participate so widely. But, you know, then it continued. Yeah. I mean, anybody listening to this podcast that led an organization or is leading one now will know it was all right, well, yeah. we just got to get to summer. Right. And then it was like, well, we're not going to get to summer. Spring 2021 will be like game. Well, I mean, it went really, it was the dominoes or however you want to. Uh, yeah feel this uh all right summer didn't happen all right that's okay we'll get to autumn and yeah. then it was like all right spring 21 is going to be it we're going to be fine and kappa had 11 students we normally would have had 1200 right yeah <laughs> so yeah we 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 lost a lot of good people because not only you know was there 
an economic reality to the situation everybody was in. And this isn't, you know, this isn't just study abroad. This is the world. Right. Um, but people had to make choices, mm-hmm. you know, and we mm-hmm. lost a lot of people because they elected to go somewhere else, to leave the field. You know, I think mm-hmm. everybody knows we lost a lot of great people to the field of international education because of this, mm-hmm. because of the mm-hmm. uncertainty. Um, and, you know, Brooke, we just weathered the storm, mm-hmm. you know, as best, as best we possibly could with the deepest respect for our professional community and, and, and all that. Well, uh, that's a great segue into probably one of the biggest decisions, at least publicly, um, that you you made during the pandemic. And in May, you announced that you took on um, basically an investment partner, partner, Infendi. Am I saying that correctly? And Infinity partners, Infinity. I'm sorry, uh, I do have that wrong. <laughs> um, and that they also uh, invest in CEA, which leads to a partnership between you and CEA. Um, how did that come about and why, you know, I, you know, I don't know the back and you don't have to tell us, but maybe that wasn't the thing you always wanted to happen, but it did. So what, what makes you hopeful for it? So how did it happen and what are you excited about as a result of it? Well, how did it happen was, well, really, you want an open conversation. <laughs> you know, it's my, it. it's my job as the chief executive officer to uh, be creative, innovative, and realistic. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, looking at where things were going, we clearly had an economic roadmap and how we were going to get through this. Um, and I was very committed to, to retain the people that we had and to rebuilding and so on. And so there were two choices. There was shutter down and, and wait or there was look for support. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we uh, assembled a team to say, all right, well, what could we do? You know, is there a way to actually leverage our reputation and, and our, our business mm-hmm. to get an investor? And along came Infinity. They had invested um, in, in CEA. And, uh, you know, it's a, you know, it's a private conversation, obviously, mm-hmm. but the more I spoke with them and understood their commitment to the field, and I, you know, their their CEO uh, said to me, you know, look, study abroad has been around for a hundred years, and it's going to be around for another hundred years. So our mission is to help organizations that are who want to be around and need an investment, not just to actually survive, but to actually be bigger and better. Mm. And as you know, you know, I'm, I'm very committed to the center-based model, very committed to the, the, the opportunities that technology um, and a global platform can present to study abroad students, but they all cost money. Mm-hmm. And so I very carefully looked at the organization. I brought many people into the conversation about what we will do and how we will do this. Not everybody, because this was a this was a difficult thing to contemplate. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the end, it just made the best sense to actually go down this road. It not only protected people's jobs, protected our ability to operate in the future, and successfully operate in the future because there's being here and there's being here and able to perform like you did pre-pandemic right and my commitment was if we're going to run programs they are going to be the best highest quality that everybody expects and anything less is not acceptable Mm -hmm. and so we we did we went we accepted the investment um we're now partners in this group we work with cea you know right now we're 
you know, we're still figuring it out. Yeah. It means that, you know, Kappa is still the organization everybody expects us to be. I am the CEO. CA are the same exact thing you expect them to be if you're working with them. And um, we're helping each other. You know, there's been a lot of support emotionally, you know, there's going through a lot of, a lot of trauma, if you think about what we're describing here. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, it's so far, it's been, a, it's been a wonderful journey, I have to say, you know, yeah. um, sure, was it scary going down this route? I don't know, a, a little bit. Yeah. But, you know, we're well into it now. And our infinity partners are incredibly supportive. We've, you know, we, if you're looking on LinkedIn, you see the Kappa is hiring like crazy. Yes, so <laughs> we are hiring. So check it out. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, I'm very excited about our future now because yeah. we've got financial security. We have independence. You know, I'm still making the decisions I always was. We're still pushing the agenda. You know, this week alone, I had several conversations about, you know, new programs and new identities, new opportunities for students. And I know we're still in a pandemic, but for the first time, certainly since we've been in it the last couple of months with this funding and the support that, you know, that's pretty amazing support. Mm -hmm. uh, I really believe we've got a, a very exciting future in front of us. Yeah. Well, you know, I think one of the misconceptions I think sometimes people have in international ed around these, these, uh, you know, acquisitions, investment partners, whatever, you know, all these different models that have we've seen over the past several years. And people, and there, sometimes people get really freaked out by like this idea, like, oh, these, these other organizations coming into our playground, so to speak. And I think what people don't, I, or sometimes forget is that running study abroad programs costs money. <laughs> and if we actually believe in generation study abroad and capacity building and, and giving more diversity of students an opportunity to have these programs, that it, we need capital to make those things happen. Um, it's not just going to be because we think it's a good idea and we're great. You know, it, we, we actually have to have capital to bring on smart people to help deliver programs, build programs, create new innovative models that give broader access to more students, provide scholarship opportunities. Also, because otherwise, if you didn't take outside investment, the amount you'd have to crank up the cost of a program to be able to do all those things would make it even less accessible to students. And so sometimes I feel like people need to kind of get off their high horse if they're like, oh my gosh, outside investors, that's sketchy. I'm like, no, it's not. This is how you scale an, a field. This is how you scale a product. Um, and luckily for us, the product that we get to, to talk about and promote and talk about very passionately is study abroad, which is amazing and beautiful. Um, we could be in the mattress industry and be like, how do we scale the mattress <laughs> business? You know, But we don't have to do that. We get to talk about transformational global experiences. And, um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting the wanting more tools to make more of that possible for more students. And if that, in, it means it's capital from an outside firm that like you said, believes in the longevity of study abroad, then I say power to you and congratulations. Hey, I've had nothing but support from infinity because they believe in what we do. And mm -hmm. I, you know, their, their mission to me is keep cap of being, you know, one of the, the better study abroad providers. I mean, mm -hmm. the word better isn't coming out the way I want it to be, but you know, our, our focus has always been high impact, high quality teaching mm -hmm. and learning. Mm -hmm. And that is what we were doing. And so I, you know, my comment about what, what you just said would only be this. 
you should judge an organization by the programs and successes they have and how they, they take care of your students and your faculty. Mm -hmm. And also know that we are financially solvent. And these are important things. And I, I will say, you know, the field is, is changing and cooperation, collaboration, shared responsibility are gonna become a norm for us. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we should be afraid of that mm -hmm. actually. In fact, we, we should be excited about it. Mm -hmm. I don't have a statistic for you, but if you actually wiped out all the providers in our field, even our commitment to JEDI and DEI and choice and access, it would be virtually eliminated, mm -hmm. actually. Mm -hmm. So, you know, creating sustainable economic plans for organizations is what you should expect a provider mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. be doing. So this isn't, you know, this isn't a negative thing. It's actually very positive. It's very exciting. And I, exciting. I think too, it's like, you know, I feel like if, if you think about us as international educators, you know, and standing on our individual soapboxes, shouting to the world, why study abroad so amazing. And now people with, I mean, I don't know, but like see, seemingly deep pockets who are smart business savvy individuals who are like they see the value in it financially, but also the value in it to why it's going to grow and why society is going to see it as a value um, proposition for young people, you know, now and into the future. And I feel like we should be feeling good about ourselves that like the outside world is now saying like, yeah, we, we hear you. We hear you on your soapboxes saying how meaningful this is. And they're actually putting their money behind it, which I think is incredibly exciting. It's a shift into what may have been a transactional decision for a, a firm to one that's pointed towards mission and purpose. Mm -hmm. So they're more interested in creating mission-oriented organizations, which is where, you know, I know you want to talk about employment. I, this is where people want to be, especially after this pandemic. So many people have reconsidered, you know, where they want to be, what time they want to give to something, how they want to work, where they mm -hmm. want to work, it's all, mm -hmm. et cetera. And so I think this is a part of how the world is, is moving really mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, focusing on what counts, what matters, mission, mm -hmm. purpose, how you feel about something and why you're going to give it your time. So. I say related to that, um, also from, and this is off topic, but I think also from the employee perspective, yes, I, I agree. People are like, oh gosh, if I have only, you know, 85 years on this planet on average, do I want to be shilling mattresses or do I want to be you know, talking about something I'm very passionate about? I think that is a conversation people are having with themselves and where, how they're wanting to devote their time and energy. But on the same notion, I think, as you mentioned, losing so many people from internet, talented, smart, innovative people from our field who are going to other industries is I also think it makes us as a field also have to say like, is it enough to just tell people, but you get to talk about your passion or do we also have to compensate them adequately, especially since most of us are, I mean, no offense, but like most of our field is telling people go get a master's degree to work, to get a 42,000 a year job. Um, and so I feel like we also have to maybe look in the mirror to go, Oh, are we actually compensating? And I'm being compensation as an umbrella term for all types of benefits, not just salary. Um, are we, are we really treating our employees, um, adequately so that they don't want to 
you know, leave and the exodus to other, other fields. I mean, that's happening in higher ed. Generally, there's a, a Facebook group called, um, student affairs expatriates, and it has 15,000. It started a year ago. It has 15,000 members and it's all people who are wanting to leave higher education administration work because of, you know, a litany of issues, but one of them is like overworked, overeducated, underpaid, you know, all these things. Um, there's a great medium post that I'll link to in the show notes that people want to um, read a very good synopsis of this. But I think that also, you know, begs us as employers and, and you know, people leading organizations and universities to go, okay, how are we actually making sure we're getting the best talent? And, and part of getting the best talent is giving them the full stack of compensation, you know, and there's a lot of things that go under that. I don't know, thoughts, agree, disagree? Let's just debate it out. <laughs> Ooh, that's like another podcast, my friend. Uh -huh. <laughs> You know, that's a difficult, I can't answer that question yeah. fairly. Um, what I can say, you know, on our side is, as we're, you know, coming to the other side of, of this thing, is a strong commitment to just make sure that, you know, we create a positive, equitable place, equitable place to, to work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it doesn't mean we, we just basically bump everybody's salaries up and things like that. We're still in a pandemic. And there still is an economic crisis. Uh, we're very fortunate in that it looks like spring 22, the numbers are definitely, you know, looking familiar again. You know, they're not right. back 100%. You know, for example, we don't have a program in Sydney, but we do in, in multiple other locations. And so I think the, I can certainly speak for the Kappa community, the existing and lots of new people that are, are coming on. We're just really excited to be able to still do this work, yeah, and, you know, and access the the energy, the passion, and the reward for helping students, mm -hmm. you know, learn abroad and faculty to teach abroad. And I think there are different ways to make people feel good about their jobs and ways to to reward them for doing a good job. And they're not all economic, you know. Some mm -hmm. of them are other things. Yeah. Flexibility now, like with remote work, work from home. Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. You know, it's 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 created a whole new opportunity to examine how to get people to thrive mm -hmm. with their own individual circumstances, whether it be mm -hmm. responsibilities at home or or things that they have to attend to, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I have to say, even for me as a leader, it's it's been really interesting to to look at how much more nimble we've become mm -hmm. and how much happier people are with the flexibility. So. Mm -hmm. It isn't all about dollars. It's about a whole mindset on how you treat people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause I always tell like in my, in global pro Institute, we talk about negotiating your compensation, but we talk about it as a package, you know, so it's not yeah. just salary. It could be flex time working from home a couple of days a week or, um, other, other benefits like a professional development, um, earmarked fund for them, things like that, that are not just, you know, the bottom line salary, but the, all of those contribute to, is this going to be a place that you can thrive, get back to the organization in a really meaningful way, but also feel like you're thriving personally and professionally. Um, and I, yeah, I, I often use this phrase because we're, we're, you know, we are creating all kinds of things now. Right. But mm -hmm. I said it in a meeting onboarding I don't know, 12 people this morning. It's a kind of coffee hour with me to just talk about our history and stuff like that. And I, you know, I invited them to share with me, you know, now and later 
the journey to onboarding at Kappa. And I said, you know, I'd love to hear how your experience was. And I, and more importantly, you know, I'd love your perspective on how to improve things and so on. And I, the phrase I used was, you know, you, you have a chance to kind of put your blue, your thumbprint on our blueprint mm-hmm. for change. And mm-hmm. I, I really do believe that, but, you know, community discussions and um, contributions wide across Kappa are what make it, uh, you know, make it the company that it is really. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, and also a little pro tip for anybody listening who uh, maybe isn't doing this already, but if you are thinking about applying for a job at Kappa, yeah, you should definitely go back and listen to the last episode with John. Obviously, <laughs> listen to this episode if you are. But I will say that a lot of people I've interviewed in the past, um, even the original interviews um, that are just on the YouTube channel, I people will tell me all the time, like, "Yeah, I just interviewed somebody the other day, and they said they." basically Googled me and found that interview and it was super helpful. And like, they did like some reconnaissance work and I don't know if that's ever, ever happened to you. And I'm like, you're, I, I know some actual people who have applied to Kappa who are asking me what I knew about them. And I was like, go listen to this. Which oh, that's, great. that's really <laughs> so, great. Yeah. 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 Um, so about careers, this is our last like formal question. And then we'll head into the new segment, the lightning round. Um, but in terms of careers, we have a lot of people who listen to inside study abroad who are trying to break in or trying to up level, um, for where they are now. Um, and I know you mentioned Kappa's doing a lot of hiring, but you've been hiring for, you know, forever now. Um, what, when you're interviewing people and you're having that conversation, what do you feel like people might be missing? You're like, ah, they're just missing this thing. If they just knew more to do this or less of that, what would be a piece of advice you'd give people to maybe focus on going into their next interview? Oh, great question. You know, it's a, it's a cliche, but a genuine, why do you want this job? Why do you want mm-hmm. to be here, right? Yeah. So especially for an organization like ours, right? Which are very mission and purpose oriented, right? Um, so that there's that why question, but I, I ultimately uh, believe it's, what are you going to bring? You know, there's always going to be the questions on what you you need as an employee. And so it's a two-way street. It's a dialogue on whether this is a good place for both of us. But for me, it's really, you know, what can you bring to the organization? You know, what in your experiences, your formal training, in your idea mill, you know, Mm -hmm. and to not be afraid to kind of go a little bit out there, you know, and show your personality, like just Mm -hmm. be yourself, really. Mm -hmm. And, you know, read everything you can about us, read all the website stuff and so on and so forth, but don't, don't spit it back. We, we yeah. know what we are and we know who we are. What do you think? And mm-hmm. I think the more genuine you can be with, you know, well-articulated statements or even not so well-articulated, but genuine statements about this is what I think I can do here actually puts you in a really good position to know whether you should be here and want to be here because it's the response that you get from the other side. And I, you know, for me, when candidates are just really into the discovery that an interview can offer you, it tells me they're, you know, they want to find a good place to be. Mm-hmm. We spend so much time at work, you know, you want to make sure it's a place you want to be. And mm-hmm. I, so that would be, I don't know if that's helpful advice it's or not. Very helpful advice. I will speak for everyone. Yes, that was very helpful. I I feel like I mean, the world needs genuine now. Yeah, we've been through a lot, so yeah. it's it's time to just really be who you are, be genuine and honest. And I really believe. 
that that'll be a pathway to success. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I really love that because as someone who has a really hard time toning down my rookness, <laughs> I, I appreciate that. I feel seen, I feel heard. Um, and anybody yeah. out there just, okay. Like, and I always tell people to, you know, practice, like turn on your video webcam, hit record and pretend somebody just asks you, why do you want this job at Kappa? And just talk to yourself, like in a room and just tell all the stories, tell all the things, and then like watch yourself back and go, Oh, that thing I said was kind of cool. And that part of my story, it actually is a little, um, creative and, and memorable uh, and then fine tune that over time. Um, but yeah, like say it out loud, say it to yourself and, and listen back. And then, you know, just echoing what John says, like, I always tell people all the time, it sounds very harsh, but I mean it with love is that they don't care about you yet. <laughs> they care about their organization. They want to know how you are going to make their lives better, easier, you know, uh, faster, stronger, all the things. Um, and, and how you are going to bring your special expertise, experience, talents, passions, to make that happen. And, um, later on, they will start caring about like where you grew up and all the things, you know, those things will happen later, but now they just want to know where your value add is for them. Um, and that you have like a, a unique, you know, point of view and passion for that thing. And, um, again, practice, practice, practice saying it out loud. Um, I, I I'm going to challenge you a little bit there. Though. Ooh, tell me like, let's well, do it. Well, I hope that anybody interviewing anybody cares. And I know that I know what what you're saying, but it isn't all about what it isn't 100% about, you know, your, your impact before you know how you can have your impact. Mm. I think it's about being honest about who you are and uh, being prepared and not being afraid to actually express yourself for me. I, you know, no, I, not I every organization right. is going to, is going to be like that. I, yeah. I totally, I totally get that. But, you know, if an interview, if you walk away from an interview and it wasn't a little bit interesting and fun, it wasn't a good interview. Well, here's what I, the, the way I, I phrase it. Um, it's not that they don't, they, I say that to like get people's attention. Right. But you know, I, what I really mean by that is I, so I'll use myself as an example. I can't say John, uh, you should hire me. And here's why, um, I grew up in rural Kansas and then I studied abroad and then I worked at this place and then this place, um, that isn't a good pitch. But if yeah. I said, John, here's why you need to hire me. First of all, I grew up in rural Kansas, um, in a single wide trailer and a single mom. And I know how hard the taking that next step to actually applying to study abroad, rounding up those funds, making that happen. And I am committed to helping students that were just like Brooke in 2000 in rural Kansas, see that this is a possibility for them. And I want to do that at Kappa by doing X, Y, and Z, right? Like that, that's my point is like, you still, you care about me and I can talk about myself, but I have to make it. Why is that? Why do you care at Kappa that I grew up in Kansas? Why would I even mention that? Unless it's truly part of like my story and my passion and why I want to do this. I feel like that's, you have to connect the dots between here's what I know and you know, my experience. And then why is this going to be valuable to the organization? I absolutely. How is it going to apply, which is important for you as the interviewee, because you yeah. want to know that you're going to be able to apply your experience. I won't, I will tell you some shares that I know we're going to need to move on. But when we had the first career integration conference um, with the University of Minnesota, um, th- there was a panel of employers. We did it at the subsequent conferences too. But I'll never forget, there was this, this uh, person from Deloitte International, I think out of Chicago, 
And, um, you know, you can imagine this was, this conference is interesting because it's, it's, um, it's study abroad, it's multiple departments, uh, it's career planning and placement, it's looking at job readiness, global skills, all that stuff. Um, and actually, during the panel, this, this one person from Deloitte said, you know, I just, I, I, I have to tell you, it all sounds great, but I'll be really frank, you know, think about the audience <laughs> that this person is speaking to, right? Yeah. And they said, you know, if a kid came in front of me from Paris, and they had this great experience and they talked about the people and the culture and the food. And I would look at them and say, what does that have to do with me? And she goes, you know what? I'd rather hire a kid from the suburbs or whatever in Chicago who came and said, here's what I can do for Deloitte. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's where you and I are meeting in the same place, really, is that mm -hmm. you have to demonstrate, you know, who you are and what you know as an opportunity for the employer. Yeah. Well, and I think anecdotally too, it's like, I think we talk and there's data, you know, people have done some longitudinal studies around, um, the positive impact study abroad has on people's career trajectory, their starting salary, all those things. But I think it's not just purely because, you know, they studied abroad, like, like you said, it, it was because they were able to position their time in Paris on an internship with Kappa. I I'm sorry. I don't think you are in Paris, but anyway, uh, <laughs> in London, we'll say London. And they said, and this is what my internship in this accounting firm was like, and here are the, the things I learned, the challenges I was met with, blah, blah, blah. And here's how I'm going to apply that learning and understanding to my position at Deloitte. That's where, you know, they're like, oh, tell me more about your time in London. That will actually be valuable, but it's not just, I was in London and yeah. Tell me, tell you the crazy night at the pub, you know, like those are lovely stories for your family, maybe, but not as helpful in a career setting. And so I think we are 100% on the same level. I just say Absolutely. it more dramatically <laughs> to get people's attention. Uh, so, okay, let's move on to the lightning round. Um, and I, I don't know him, what that is. You didn't tell me about this uh, part. No, I did. I sent it in the email. It's in the email. So, <laughs> uh -oh. um, so I'm just going to ask you a few quick questions off the top of your head. Um, and, uh, you know, just to share with the people. So the first question is question, what is a book that you recommend to every professional you ever meet at, in any industry that you're like, Oh, you have to read this book. Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Okay. That's a good one. Okay. Um, so you lived in London for many years. Um, so you, I, yeah, so yeah, it's like basically your hometown in a lot of ways. Um, What's a little known restaurant that everyone should try next time they're in London? DeMario's on Gloucester Road. Okay, nice. The, and you have to get the fish stew. Okay, Ugh. I love I love the, this is honestly personal for me. I'm just like, it's for me. Oh, uh, I can't wait. Uh, okay, what's a... <laughs> Uh, software or technology that you use every day in your specific work that helps you do what you do? Besides like email, obviously. <laughs> well, Zoom. <laughs> there can only be one answer to that question. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, I'm not yeah. quite sure. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I... It's been interesting, hasn't it? I'm, I'm an office guy. I love the dynamic of being around other people. I love hearing conversations and, mm -hmm. you know, getting a cup of coffee and just hearing about how people are doing and stuff like that. So I miss uh -huh. that a lot. Mm -hmm. um, is going back in January. Um, but the Zoom community 
you know, that we've created, the platform, you know, itself that we're using to, to retain connectivity and socially, formally, you know, professionally, you know, uh, Zoom cocktail hours and all that stuff. Yeah has actually, you know, been a lifesaver. I'm not trying yeah. to plug Zoom here, actually, but- Their stock price is fine. <laughs> so yeah, I know, right? You know, the fact that we all have this, this connectivity through this online engagement, I think has probably saved a lot of people's, mm -hmm. certainly morale and, and many other things, actually. Mm -hmm. so answer. Yeah, I mean, I think it's so interesting because it's not as if the technology didn't exist pre-pandemic. So there were ways oh. to do this, but um, like even anecdotally for me, um, about, about twice a year, maybe three times a year. Well, in the past two years, since the pandemic, all of my best, there's like about seven of us, my best grad school friends, we live all over the country. And now we do these like, you know, cocktail, you know, happy hours, um, like twice a year, three times a year. We never did that in the decade before, you know, since we had graduated. Um, but now we were like, oh, we need to connect. I'm like, we always needed to connect, but now it's like, oh, part of the daily um, apparatus of our lives. And, and it makes it so much easier. I, I did a podcast episode. Gosh, uh, we did the recording back in fall of 2018. And it was a group panel discussion. And um, it was several people at universities, um, um, somebody from a provider, and we were all over the country. And I already used Zoom in my business because I had a had a remote team. And so I was like, we're going to use this platform called Zoom. And I had to like send them instructions on how to download. They were all like, what is this yeah. you know, wizardry that you have done? And so I just remember, and then a year later, you know, a year plus later, it was like everybody and their mother. It's like, yeah, I love it. So, I mean, it's a, it's a legit uh, recommendation. So, um, okay. So what about once you feel good about it and you feel comfortable, um, and the world, you know, is ready for you, what's a travel, um, bucket list item for you, either destination or experience that you're hoping to have. That's a really, I, you know, that's skydiving in Dubai. No. <laughs> oh, all right, let me share a story. I, okay, I, okay. So um, it's upfront and personal, but I haven't been back to London in a very long time. My partner lives there, so we've been separated for over a year. Oh. I finally did get to go back, and I Demario's was on my list. Addie's yeah. Thai Cafe, the National Museums, blah blah blah. Yeah. Um, full agenda. Um, and the Kappa community. Well, I, on my flight, unfortunately, someone had COVID, so I had to quarantine the entire time I was there. I wasn't allowed to leave the threshold of that house. So there lies Zoom connections and all that stuff. So the reason I'm saying that is I didn't get to actually go back to my city, which is London, and go to my favorite places there. So it really probably is that. Mm. But further afield, um, I'm really, really anxious to get back uh, to Thailand. For mm. I just had a really great uh, experience there. So, yeah. um, but beyond that, I think my next bucket list is I've never been to India actually, which is crazy given what I do, but that's, yeah. that's the place I've been longing to go to for a really long time. I love India. It's top three. You know, when people ask you the horrible, unanswerable question of what are your favorite, what's your favorite place in the world you've been to? And I'm like, I can't answer that question, but India's top three for me. Yeah, for sure. I know. I got to get, I have to get there. Yeah, next. that's great. Yeah. Um, so earlier, before we started recording, you mentioned you wanted to read something that you thought was um, inspirational, maybe helping you get through the pandemic and might be valuable to our listeners. Do you want to share with that with us? Well, yeah, I, I will. A, my picture keeps flopping on me. So through this whole thing, you know, there were just so many moments of 
concern and this overwhelming sense of uncertainty, right? Mm-hmm. Remember that? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just whether you worked in learning abroad. It was it was for everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, you know, are you going to have Christmas on your own? Are you going to be able to go to this party or graduation or whatever? Mm-hmm. And I have uh, an aunt who was, was a big mentor of mine, and she passed away before the pandemic. But she left me some things, and I hadn't really gone through them. So I one day was just going through them and I found this picture that she sent me and it says, faith is believing that one of two things will happen, that there will be something solid for you to stand on or that you will learn to fly. Mm. And we learned how to fly. Yeah. Really, I, I genuinely believe in the darkest moments of uncertainty and fear and concern for so many things that we are forced to reinvent, to create, and to learn how to fly. And I think, you know, metaphorically, it totally works for our field, if you think think about it. Mm -hmm. But I think that's, you know, that's the beautiful thing about our field. It's resilient. We believe that the world has, you know, so many lessons for us, and that, Mm -hmm. you know, this is an, an interdependent community, not an independent one. And so I think that uh, there are invaluable lessons about, you know, how the world will, will connect and operate with itself once we, we get through this. And, mm-hmm. you know, we can't leave this conversation without saying, you know, the challenges are still coming. I can't leave this conversation by saying to our partners who, my gosh, boy, talk about proof is in the pudding, but our institutional partners have been through so many of their own challenges with the exact same problems, whether it be economic, professional resources, and mm-hmm. nobody should ever think it's all about the provider suffering. Every institution mm. is also suffering too. But the way we all came together uh, to help each other, there's a thing called the Provider Collective that emerged out of this, um, yeah. where you know competing organizations get together and say, "How are you? You know, and how are you handling this?" And, it's not a um, unfamiliar story in this field because it is yeah. a very collaborative and sharing one, but actually the way everybody came together to, to really support each other and, you know, talk best practice and make sure that everybody was going to get through this was remarkable. And so yeah. I have to look in that camera and say to our institutional partners, the way you, you know, checked in with us, supported us and, you know, kept communicating with us and are now sending us students because you trust us. I, my, my gratitude is, is, has no boundaries. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's the true partnership, right? It's not one directional and it's not just when times are great, right? This is Um, when you learn about the difference between transaction and transformation. mm -hmm. And I, no one let us down. I, I, Mm -hmm. it was remarkable and continues to and I think also too, I, I know a couple of other people who are part of the provider collective. And when they were telling me about it, I I, I was like, how did that, how was this not already happening? I know. <laughs> so I, know. I just I hope I hope it continues even when you know this is a you know we're talking about the pandemic like we talk about the great recession or something where it's like in the clear rear view mirror um but I hope that kind those types of collaborations and checking in and uh, just connection continue because I think that we can only be better when we're learning and growing together um and I think that's a great way to to close out this um 
part two of the the john christian experience here um thank you so much john for coming back on the podcast and thanks for bringing to, me back yeah we won't wait another whatever nine years, nine years. <laughs> to do it again i'm sure a lot's going to change even in the next decade um and so i'd love to have you back again and uh thank you so much for being on the show and i will link to john and kappa and all the things down below oh one of the things i was going to say it was so funny at the end of the last episode i remember at, saying oh i'll link to kappa's all the the socials or whatever. Instagram didn't exist yet. People, I didn't <gasps> mention your Instagram. And the reason is I was like, Oh, cause I thought about that. I was like, why did I say Instagram? It didn't exist yet. This is wow. how old we are. <laughs> so, wow. So yeah. Anyway, we will link to the Instagram, it's Twitter, amazing, all the things. Isn't yeah. It? Yeah, if, you, yeah. if you think how old some of the things are that are our resources, we can't live without when they're really not even a decade old. Oh my God. So it's Kappa on, are you going down the TikTok bandwagon? Is it the marketing team? Like exploring yeah, TikTok? Of course you got to, that's where the kids are. Right. All right. <laughs> Thank you, John. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brett. Take care of yourself.